I don't know. I was just watching the baseball game and it was frustrating me and I have to get out of baseball headspace. Like your team that you want to be winning is not winning frustration? Yes, that's the perfect question from someone who doesn't really follow sports but is aware of the fact that it consists usually of a team playing another team. Pain works on a sliding scale. So does pleasure in a candy jail. True love doesn't come around anymore. Than... So hey everybody, welcome to Candy Jail, the podcast that was once hospitalized for not approaching David Berman. So we are doing something a little bit different. Uh, this is episode number 10 for us, and we thought we would go off script and just kind of wing this one and finally work our way around to the namesake of this podcast, David Berman. And I want to give a I want to give credit to Helen Miller, who is our special guest on the episode we will be releasing two weeks after this episode comes out, who had a wonderful conversation with us about uh, Roland Barthes and his book, Camera Lucida. And we recorded for almost three hours. And after we got off mic, she sent us a message and said, one thing I forgot to ask, what's the deal with David Berman? And so this is our first what's the deal with David Berman episode. And uh, Helen, I guess, in a sense, this is for you. So we're not sure where this is going to go or how this is going to go. Um, but if we, if if this made it so far out there that you are listening to it, presumably that means we went somewhere interesting with this. So, Robert, you are wearing a Silver Juice shirt that I have not seen before. I got lots and lots of Silver Juice shirts you haven't seen before. Um, that is actually not even a joke. That sh- that reveals tips my hand uh, immediately as to how much of a super fan I am. Although I guess we're both super fans enough to name our podcast after his uh, song that can be found in his final album under the Silver Jews moniker, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I like that we are attempting our first casual, unscripted, or at least like unroadmapped episode, and that we're trying this with David Berman and of course his body of work sort of at the center of um, what, what, however we'll wind up riffing today in different directions. Um, And the reason why I think I like it is because I don't know how you feel, man. Like I know that he, his work means a lot to you at this point. I know Stephen King's does. I know, um, you know, even with all of the baggage or whatever, having to like explain it, although I don't think you should, your love of U2 or at least some of those albums, it can be very fucking hard to talk about things extremely close to you, you know, works of art, um, in part because I think it's just hard to talk about uh, art in general. But I also think it's especially hard when you have a personal stake in it. it. It almost makes it impossible. And so, again, I like that we are doing this casually, at least on my end. In theory, I like it because it takes some pressure off. It takes the pressure off of like feeling like, because I've, let me just, let me just say a few things. I know I'm rambling, but I'm a rambling man, you know? Um, Were you born that way? I was, well, my papa was a rolling stone. Um, I just got stoned. Just kidding. 
never got stoned. I I didn't inhale, just like uh, Willie Nelson, that is. So um, I think I've had a, a desire, man, to like write about my relationship to this music, write about my relationship to David Berman's poetry, on some deep level, as weird as it sounds, write about my relationship to David Berman as a human being, David Berman as a Jew, David Berman as um, someone who struggled profoundly, but was also obviously intensely gifted. And I've not written really anything of substance, I think, because of a perfectionism. Like I, it, like I instead of trying to approach perfection, I've been so... Um, internally dead set on not undercutting how how fantastic he is that it has sort of straitjacketed me so this is really my first attempt with you to do something semi-substantive with it if by substantive i mean just kind of go on the record uh, in a more public way so yeah i think it's easier for me to talk about berman than for you and I, at this point, I don't think that's because you love him more than I do. I think it's just because I came to him later and I've noticed that, and we've talked about this before, like the stuff that you fall in love with during your formative years, you know, your teens and your twenties, that stuff becomes personal in a way that it doesn't, for me at least, what the stuff that I fell in love with when I was older, I don't have that same instinctive relationship to, you know, ancient mariner like grab passersby and grab their wrist and fix them with my glittering eye so I can tell them about how awesome this thing that I love is. But with the stuff that some of the stuff that I fell in love with when I was younger, I still have that like it's so personal to me that it can be difficult for me to talk about it. It can be difficult for me to write about it. Um, there, I am I am a U2 super fan. And I actually, the reason I have podcasting equipment was because I spent about a year prepping a podcast that I wanted to do where I was going to go through U2's discography album by album. That might not happen at this point. I kind of, it was... Like I think the just the writing the episodes got something out of me that needed to come out, but that kind of um, that feeling of of my feelings about this thing are too big for me to put them out in the world in the wrong way. That is a feeling we are more likely to have, I think, about the things that we fall in love with when we're you know between the ages of like thirteen and twenty four or something. I think we uh, think connected to that too is maybe a desire not to turn the things we love into an academic exercise. Like I think for, for people who think too much, and I'm putting that as a separate category from smart. I don't think you have to be smart to think too much, but I certainly have fallen victim to overthinking. I think maybe you do sometimes from time to time, but you know, the way that an English class, right. Or a, um, college level literature class will parse a text and look for symbolism and look for metaphor and try to discuss like meta meanings of narratives. And it's like, here's a, an actual anecdote from a friend of mine who, you know, he's complicated, but I, I think he is definitely an artist and I respect him as a writer primarily. He's also a painter. 
um, but lifetime reader, intense reader. And he read the brothers Karamazov or Karamazov when he was probably in his teens, actually. He was one of those, like you, actually, like precocious in that regard, but returned to it multiple times. I mean, he'd, he's read Proust a couple times and not for a career. It's just like he's one of those readers. He encountered a young woman because he wound up working in bookstores who um, picked up the brothers Karamazov in front of him and uh, bought it. And then came back maybe like two weeks later and he asked if she, how she liked it. And she was like, I finished it. I love that. And she was like, I love that fucking book. It was a great book. And that was it. Like no further discussion. He then said like four years later, she shows up and he asks her what she's been up to at the same bookstore. And she had enrolled in a graduate program and had written her dissertation on the brothers Karamazov. And she gave it to him apparently. And he, his response to this, which I think was not to be dismissive of her, but to speak to something I think very true was he was like, you know, I really preferred the young woman who just said she fucking loved that book. And I know that that can be reductive because I think we should be able to talk about these things and make sense of, make sense of why they're so meaningful. But at a certain point or in a certain register, I actually think it can do injury to it. And so... I understood it because it is an emotional connection and you don't want to um, engage in analysis to such a degree that you surrender that emotional connection that I think is ultimately the most vital part, I think, I think. Did I ever tell you how my first experience reading Nabokov, I, I was actually in the middle of reading the Brothers Karamazov and I was probably about a third of the way into it and I was... <sighs> How do I explain it? I was enjoying parts of it, but I was also sort of forcing myself to enjoy it at the same time. And I was staying with a friend of mine who had a copy, an unopened copy of uh, Lolita, nice everyman's or um, modern library hardcover. And it was a rainy day. We were stuck inside, and I was so tired of reading Dostoevsky. I just was not into it that day. And I went over to my friend's bookshelf and I asked him if he'd ever read Lolita. And he said, no, somebody gave that to me. I've been meaning to read it, but I've, I've never read it. I said, do you mind if I, you know, he said, knock yourself out. And that was it. I mean, I opened, you know, within two minutes of cracking the book, I was completely hooked and I, you know, finished it within a day or two. That's but, impressive because that's a dense, long, it's fairly long and it's, yeah, you did it in two days. So you just, you just put everything aside and read that thing. Basically, yeah, I was I was being I was staying with my friend and his mom. I'm sure I was horribly antisocial for a couple of days while I did that. But then when it came time to write my senior thesis to graduate from undergrad, I wanted to write on Pale Fire, the Nabokov novel. And I they, can just guess that this is gonna be a fight. We don't have to say where we went, but I know that they'd probably be a pain in the ass with a request like that. Yeah, so they okayed it at first, and I got my advisor, and I was at least halfway through the writing process when they changed their mind and decided they weren't going to allow it. And in retrospect, I'm glad that that happened because what I was writing about Pale Fire was gibberish. Man, mm. it was just fucking gibberish. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but I know it was gibberish. And that was a case of Again, the same thing, me at, what, 21, 22, 
trying to write about this thing that meant way too much to me and not being nearly mature enough to do it. I'm not even going to tell you the sorts of grandiose projects I had in mind for getting at writing about David Berman's work, but there is more than one. And I've certainly mind written them hundreds of times, and especially so after his death uh, in 2019. So let's, I actually have an idea for how to get a little deeper into this. Um, and I'm not fishing for compliment on my end. I'll just, it's not even really a disclaimer. It's just a reality that I'm the one that introduced you to Berman. So I'm not asking you to like thank me live or something, but let's talk about like how we both came to him. Cause that it's not the whole story, just that I introduced you to him. I think it's interesting how, I introduced his work to you from different vantage points, and it took a few tries before it really stuck. And once it stuck, it sounded like then uh, the storyline fever got its hooks in you. Um, and if you don't mind, then I'd like to speak to how I came to it, because I have some pretty, I have a unique story with that as well, I suppose. Yeah, you had a bit of an uphill battle. And so Berman was... He was a poet and a, a singer-songwriter. Um, he went to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and became friends with Stephen Malcolmus and some of the other guys who would go on to form Pavement, the uh, extremely influential uh, early alt-rock, indie rock band. And Malcolmus and Berman formed another group that was really just started out with them jamming, I think, and eventually turned into a group that put out an album with Berman as its front man. And between, um, what was it, 1994 and 2008, this band, uh, Silver Juice, put out uh, six albums. Always a rotating lineup. Uh, Berman as songwriter and front man was the one constant. Sometimes Malcolmus was there, sometimes he wasn't. Uh, Berman's wife, Cassie, later became a member of the band. Bob Nastanovich, the drummer, might be the most consistent recurring player. He's not on all of them, but he's on most of them. Right. And this was a band that never toured until their very last album. So, you know, it's 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 one thing to develop a cult following as a touring act. That's how a lot of musicians, uh, you know, pay their rent. But to develop a cult following and then not tour at all is an extremely unusual move. And so... When you first tried to get me into Silver Jews, it was it was the music. And I can tell you exactly why I was resistant. I grew up my like my formative years listening to rock music. I was listening to mostly these really big singers like Eddie Vedder, Robert Plant, Bono, people like that. And that's that's I mean, I was listening to Leonard Cohen too, but Leonard Cohen pulled me in because of the words, you know, but when it when it came to singers, there was a certain kind of intense emotion that I was looking for. And then in the 2000s, right when I was sort of like my tastes were sort of solidifying as a listener, there was this other wave of singers that came along that seemed to be eschewing serious emotion at all costs. I always think of the band Cake, whom I despise. I don't remember that guy's name, but he sings every song like it's the most deeply ironic thing ever to be singing a song. And I found it extremely like, not just off-putting, but almost like anti-musical. And 
And when I first heard Berman's singing voice, that was what I thought of. I didn't hear any emotion in it. I heard a lot of kind of monotonous uh, irony in it, in just like the timbre of his voice. And then the the style, not all of the albums, but some of them, the musical style is sort of like this jangly lo-fi aesthetic that has never really appealed to me much because it strikes me as artificial. Mm-hmm. Um and so those were the the sort of obstacles that why artificial just out of curiosity what about that particular those arrangements because i also think like it's hard to really say like those arrangements in a homogenous sense so i'm not trying to jump down your throat but just say like each album does have its own sound going on and i would argue some are more musically accomplished like in sort of like a juilliard sense than others but I, it's interesting, like, I, I do think they're all kind of, they've got that country inflection, although I'm certainly no expert in country music. But yeah, can you speak a little more to like the artificial, yeah, label that you've that, yeah, that well, surfaced? I can, although it wasn't entirely fair of me, because I think I was lumping them in with a sort of like there's a lo-fi aesthetic that stretches from you know maybe it had its origins like in the college rock scene of the early 80s and then it 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 kind of is adjacent to punk and then it eventually morphs into these subgenres like mumble core and stuff like that but the idea is kind of i it that it's a it's a backlash to like the glossiness of a lot of really big successful rock and roll acts and if you think about, and maybe this is too inside baseball, but if you think about what the music scene was like in, say, 1986, 1987, there were a lot of hair metal bands, right, that had this big, polished, but ultimately kind of lightweight sound. Like, think of like Slayer or Poison or even Bon Jovi, right? And then Guns N' Roses comes along, and Guns N' Roses just. Yeah, they've got Slash, but they've also got their rhythm guitarist, Izzy Stradlin, who just played this incredibly loud, crunchy, gut-ripping rhythm guitar that just blew all the Slayers and the Poisons out of the water. Like, it was, you know, it was like a, a buzzsaw cutting every other rock band off at the knees. But it was still a highly produced sound expertly produced and there was a backlash against just the whole idea of expert production and also just the fact that there was home recording equipment that sounded halfway decent and even if it didn't the fact that you could just press record on one of those things in your room or your bathroom clearly opened the door for a lot of um amateur musicians that wound up actually being able to have careers right Exactly. And I think what started as a good thing, which is, hey, look, we don't have any money. We don't have a recording space. Let's just do this ourselves. Let's just grab the cheap home recording equipment and set up in the garage and record our album. That's awesome. That's a great thing to do. But then when the aesthetic becomes, we have to sound like we don't know what we're doing. We have to sound like we can't afford better equipment. We have to avoid anything that sounds too much like a pop hook or anything that sounds too much like a guitar solo that Slash would play, or a guitar solo that The Edge would play, then that now you're just deliberately crippling yourself. 
and cool. and then going out and pretending that you're you can't work and you need to panhandle like it's right, it's, it's like proving a kind of like cool person credentials or something yeah it's it's fundamentally artificial and dishonest and it doesn't appeal to me at all and for whatever reason i was lumping the jews i think into that category i wish i could remember what the first couple songs that you played for me were but i don't I mean, I definitely say that like um, Starlight Walker is probably, I mean, aside from like even the earlier, earlier stuff, there's one called, I think, the early record, the Arizona record. These are them literally like playing with broken instruments in some cases. I think Berman actually had a guitar that was literally fucking broken or at least like was missing a string and he certainly couldn't play very well at the time. So I would agree with especially pre-Starlight Walker and even Starlight Walker, even though that was their first studio recording as being, you know, the, um, what do you want to call it? I don't want to say sophomore because there's still, I think, some of my favorite songs in Starlight Walker. And of course you have Malcolmus playing with them. So I don't know how he would match up against, you know, guitar players in major bands like U2 or um, Pearl Jam, but I would imagine he's up there. He's fucking good. Um, and everyone recognized that, but I guess I just say like, I guess even like, um, what's the other one natural bridge, which is arguably my favorite might be a little rough around the edges, but, um, once you get past natural bridge, I'd say he winds up with pretty much consistently adept, if not really professional musicians around him. So, that's um we're talking bright flight tanglewood numbers uh and lookout mountain lookout sea and i actually think uh, american water certainly sounds professional too in that like whatever the hell that means but just that it's these are these are truly uh talented musicians gathered around him so i i can see i see your point and i give you that for maybe the first album but i don't know about the rest yeah no like i said it wasn't entirely fair of me you had an uphill battle because i had constructed a bias against this band or this particular artist in my head i think and then two things happened so while he was frontman for the non-touring cult act silver jews berman also published a book of poetry called actual air which was a Open City Books, 1997, I want to say. And you bought me a copy of that. And and by the way, I bought you an original Open City copy, which now, not that this matters, but it's a valuable book. Um, they're hard to get your hands on because they've, in a, I think for absolutely, I'm thrilled they've put out this hardcover edition in, a, uh, uh, in addition to an ebook. So you could spend nine bucks and get it. Um, but yeah, the one that I actually found was in a used bookstore and it's from the original sort of first run print. So that's a cool copy. And in a sense, you had an even bigger hill to climb here because I have an allergy to people who write rock lyrics who think they're poets, right? Um, anytime I hear Jim Morrison described as a poet, I want to jump out of a tall building and you know, even Bob Dylan, as as good as he is sometimes as a as a lyricist, he's a songwriter. He's not a poet. And the only person that I've ever seen do both very well was Leonard Cohen, and he started out as a poet and then decided maybe he could be a musician as well. And so, giving me like uh, here, you know that indie rocker that I love that you don't. Here's his book of poetry. Like 
that wouldn't have worked except that this is one of the best books of poetry I've ever read. And around the time that I was reading it was when Purple Mountains, Berman's new band, new album came out in 2019 after a, what was it, an 11-year hiatus, I believe? The yeah. last the last Silver Jews record was Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. It was unfairly savaged by the gatekeeping tastemakers at Pitchfork, and Berman just kind of hung up his, his gun belt and retired from the whole thing until 2019. And I was intrigued enough at that point that I'd gone back on the strength of how good his poetry was. I'd gone back and started listening to more of the Silver Jews, and I was starting to get into it. And then Purple Mountains came out, and it was that was it. I was one listened to the first song that came off off of that record, and I was a fan. And at that point, I had to go back, of course, and listen to all of the the Silver Jews records. And one of the first things that floored me was how good the band is, even on the early stuff that sounds that does have this lo-fi we don't know what we're doing vibe a lot of what's actually happening musically is pretty sophisticated if anything far from being archly ironic the music is incredibly earnest almost to a fault at times there are maybe moments where they would be better served by having a little bit more sense of humor although they many of the songs are very funny anyway. And in fact, some of the funniest songs he ever wrote are some of his later songs. And I wonder if there was whatever snob at Pitchfork it was that wrote the dismissive review of Lookout Mountain. I wonder if he was butthurt because his favorite serious person was cracking a little bit too many jokes. I don't, I don't know, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd actually, I kind of want to read that review now. I'm sure he, you know, I'm not sure Silver Jews will ever be a big band, although we'll see. Um, we, I, I found that photo. Who shared that with me? Of oh, a friend of mine happened to have come across a Lana Del Rey photo that was taken like maybe four months ago. Like Lana took it up herself. It was a selfie in her car. And she very, um, what would you call it? Skillfully put a little hint in it or a little um, plug for Berman. And you can just see at the bottom of the frame, she's probably on the, a freeway in LA. The, the, the music playing is How to Rent a Room, the opening song to Silver Jew's Natural Bridge. And I'm hoping enough, of, uh, enough Lana fans saw that and said, who is this guy? What is that song? And started listening. And I'm sure that did happen to some degree, but I think he deserves to be up there with the greats. Um, but because of his personality on some level, and I mean that as a compliment, just being um, not a limelight hungry person, although it's always complicated, right? I think there was that and there wasn't, but it was definitely a real antagonism for him. But also, as you pointed out from your first exposure to the music, his voice is tough for most people. I'm curious, actually, if we can just stay with that for a second, because now that you've gotten at 
what ultimately did turn you towards his work and make you really want to engage with it was the poetry. And then you went to Purple Mountains and that's music again. And then that was the open door finally to Silver Jews again. What were you able to accommodate internally with his voice that allowed you to connect with it? Because clearly I don't think you can connect with any music unless you can become sold on this. If it's a singer, if it's a band with a singer, a lead singer, you have to on some level feel kindly towards the voice. So what shifted for you? What allowed you to connect with it then in ways that you clearly couldn't previously? It was just realizing that it was an artifice. In other words, he wasn't singing the way that he was singing because he was trying to sound arch or unemotional. That's just his voice. And I was I was going to say this in relation to the poetry, but Berman as a poet and often as a songwriter during the Silver Jews era is very elliptical. He very rarely writes a poem that has a continuous idea or theme that you can track from the first line to the last. He is often he he writes the most beautifully constructed sentences and puts them together. But those beautifully constructed sentences may not fit together in any way that is immediately thematically obvious or even thematically obvious after prolonged reflection. But they they sound right together. Um, Almost like perfect haiku non sequiturs stitched together across a song. Exactly, exactly. And my original pitch for the name of this podcast was In the Wild Hotels of the Sea, which is the last line of his poem, Community College in the Rain, which might might be my favorite Berman poem, but if you ask me what it was about, I couldn't tell you. I would just read it to you. When he was older and he was writing the songs for Purple Mountains, he made a point of not wanting to be elliptical anymore. He wanted to come to the point and he wanted to to be direct. And up until the Purple Mountains album, he had flirted with directness, I think, but he had always leavened it with this measure of cryptic, like you said, almost like haiku-like, or in some cases even koan-like utterances that would sort of break up the otherwise earnest, direct flow of his of his images and his thoughts. There's a couple exceptions with like straightforward, actual, like na- almost narrative storytelling, but there are very few. I think I could probably count them on one hand, if not two fingers. Um, but yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so when he sat down to write for Purple Mountains and he put his hand to being direct and being unambiguous, it turned out he was about as good at it as anyone who'd ever lived. And that was, I think, the entry point for me because it reinforced for me, oh, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. He has absolute and utter command of his art. And when he's being elliptical, it's not because he doesn't, it, it's basically, it's not because he, how do I say this? There's a certain kind of writing that you see it in poetry and you see it in song lyrics that I have a particular allergy to. The person who always comes to mind for me is Tori Amos. 
Have you ever spent any time with any of Tori Amos's music? I think I've probably wound up with a couple songs on repeat at different points in my life, but I can't even tell you which ones. Okay, so incredible musician and has some amazing songs out there and from time to time writes amazing lyrics. I mean, the, the lyrics to, you know, like the song Crucify, for instance, are pretty damn good. But she, especially as she started, I guess, maturing as an artist a little bit, would write these like stream of consciousness nonsense lyrics that I think meant something to her, but it really just sounds like, you know, she would like ratatouille, stricanine, sometimes he's a friend of mine, like just stuff that doesn't mean anything at all, but it, I guess she just liked the way it sounded or something, and I hate it. I hate it so much. There's these songs that have the most beautiful melodies and harmonies and sophisticated chord changes, and it's just like, sonically it is the most beautiful thing you've ever heard and then she's singing this just nonsense silliness that almost breaks the spell of everything else and most people who write kind of disjointed uh cryptic poetry that's really what they're doing they're writing that way because they don't know how to write any other way and they they think that these like subconscious associations that sound cool to them also sound cool to other people and have artistic value but they really don't I would even add another fold to that, which is, I mean, some of that stuff is just plain bad. And even if they, I mean, I don't want to sound like an asshole, but I think even if some of those folks worked at it hard to be more meaningful and direct, they would not uh, be very successful. But I think there's also the poets who start that way. I might argue most poets start that way is my guess. And have the potential to uh, really pro- produce meaningful poems, meaningful art. And the reason that they start that way and might even stay that way uh, forever, and that's a that does injury to where they could have gone with their talents, is because it's fucking scary to actually bear yourself. And I think a lot of that stuff, a lot of that acrobatics, and I'll even include myself in this because... I think I'm still semi-stuck in that myself, not that I've been writing a lot of poetry recently, but I have in the past. And I I did fall into that kind of a mode. And I think if I'm going to psychoanalyze myself and then unfairly project that onto all poets of all, you know, forever and ever, I think a big chunk of it is like we, we, it's scary to be vulnerable and to be direct is to be vulnerable on some level. And, um, To do that, irrespective of it being good or not good, as in like an actual artistic achievement, I'm saying that completely untethered from an institutional definition of artistic, like genuine, just like it's connecting with millions of people, thousands of folks. Uh, Fuck, that's hard. It's so scary. No one wants to be mocked or made fun of or shot down or you're just like pulling off your goddamn shirt with a with a gash and you're allowing not only the gash to be seen you're it's not like you're throwing salt in the gash but you are you're speaking directly to it um to to use an image that is probably overused but i'm just trying to hit this as as close as i can like it takes guts and i think some people work up the guts to do it and some don't and i think he did in spite of how it de- how what developed uh, subsequently well it's always much less frightening if you can be misunderstood 
and you hide know, behind the hijinks and the acrobatics. Yeah, exactly. I almost it it's I, I was just thinking about how it's like, you know, if you're in a relationship with someone or you want to be in a relationship with someone to actually sit down in front of them and say, "Listen, um I'm really attracted to you or I love you or whatever it is." That is obviously very frightening because you can be rejected. Whereas if you put hints out there like a lot of people seem to do, especially when they're younger, you know, if the person is then uh, not into you, you can just hide behind the, f- oh, I, no, I didn't mean it that way. You're just misunderstanding me. Writers do that same kind of thing. Like, what did you think of my poem? Well, I don't know. I didn't really get it. Well, you just misunderstood it, right? It's not that you're not you- smart enough to get it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I would, I would like at some point to spend time with Berman's poetry to try to try to describe it a little bit. I would certainly never want to sit down and write a graduate level dissertation on it. That holds no appeal to me whatsoever. I wanted to say one other thing, and then you can uh, tell me about your introduction to Berman, but I can actually tell you the song that made me a Silver Jews fan. It was San Francisco, B.C., which interestingly is a not a representative Silver Juice song at all. It's a narrative track off of their last record. And it contains the funniest line I've ever heard in a song, which is, what about the things that we, quote, believe? And it was that humor, even though, like I said, that's not really a, a representative song for them. But it was that humor that was what brought me in. And once I got in through the humor, then I was able to appreciate the seriousness, if that makes sense. But for whatever reason, because of the way that I'd kind of unfairly stereotyped Berman as um, a sort of irony-obsessed Gen X um you know, mopey sort of savant, I guess. Um, it was it was his incredible sense of humor that that was the thing that was needed to 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 um make me take him seriously, I guess. Which is a nice little paradox. Indeed, indeed. So your love of Berman goes back much, much farther in your life than mine does. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, before I do that, I just want to throw in my the only other narrative song that comes to mind immediately under Silver Jews, which is um, I Remember Me from, which one is that? Uh, Bright Flight. And it is on, actually, it's, 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 I don't even think on some level, it is a deeply sad song. And it was actually one of my least favorites for years, I think in part because it's a narrative. And for some reason, I was resisting that. Um, also, in part, your, your point about, you know, at times he, he can skirt the line of almost like too much earnestness. Although if I had to choose between too much and not enough or not enough, like being too fucking cool, which I feel like I hate to put it this way, but Father John Misty strikes me as the opposite end of like, he's really trying to be cool. And I find it extremely off-putting. Um, I might not be giving him a fair shake. I have heard his music, so he's clearly talented, but even, and I know this is like outside of the the purview of actual, his actual music making, but his, his, his interviews 
just make him seem like such a jerk. And that was another thing I so loved with Berman. I did get the chance to meet him uh, once. Um, but every interaction he seems to have, not only with the public, so he had difficult relationships with his friends, complicated, but there's an unbelievable genuineness and earnestness that courses through all facets of his life. And so it wasn't just performative. And I, I really love that about the music and about him as a human being. Um, even if I didn't know him personally. I kind of fell off of listening to Father John Misty after the album that had, um, oh, I forget what it's called, uh, but the album that has like Holy Shit and A Strange Encounter on it. A lot of those songs are very funny, but there is arguably, arguably, something mean-spirited about some of them. And he has a song called uh, Only Son of the Ladies Man. Great, great song. And it has contains the line, I'm a steady hand I'm a Dodgers fan. And then I saw him perform that one time and I, he changed the line, I'm a Dodgers fan to I'm a sports ball fan. And sports ball is this term that was invented by people who think they're cool because they, they're not fans of any sports. And what, football, baseball, basketball, it's all the same. It's sports ball. Ha ha ha. We're so cool because we don't follow sports like you idiots. And it's always, the term sports ball has always irked me. And the fact that Josh Tillman would put it in one of his songs and he would swap it out for a lyric that actually meant something about being a fan of a team in a specific location, which was relevant to the song, just really rubbed me the wrong way. But <laughs> that is neither here nor there. I'm, I didn't mean to go down too much of a Father John Misty uh, side road. I just wanted to get that out there since you brought him up. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just to end the side road, I remember reading an interview with him, like kicking back one tequila after another at like a hip bar giving really sort of dismissive and rude answers to the interviewer, which I thought it's never a good sign. Um, even Dylan, whose work I'm not deeply intimate with, although I have high respect for, has been infamously rough on some um, huge super fan interviewers, which I think is not cool. And Berman was never that way um, with really anyone. I've not heard this with any fan that he treated that way. Um, but I remember me, I didn't like because it actually did strike me as not only, I don't think Ernest was the word. It was like the only song in the entire corpus, which felt almost saccharine. Um, but I've since warmed to it because back to the lyricism, just the mastery of what he's done there. I mean, he is ingenious with pivoting from first to second to third person. He's genius in pivoting from past to present to future tense. And he's genius with some of the images just to, I'll end with this one comment, but I wanted to use this as sort of a tie into your San Francisco BC, like the only narrative songs uh, in the middle of the song, sort of the, the uh, what would you call it? The major turning point is two characters are in love. They're picking flowers by uh, the side of a road. And the man turns to the woman and asks if she'd marry him. And right before she gets to respond, he gets hit by a truck. And the next line are, or I can't remember if it's exactly the next line, but he has two lines to encapsulate what it must be like to get hit by a truck and fall immediately into a coma. Do you remember what the two uh, lines are? I don't. All right, you fail the you fail the super fan quiz. That's okay. 
the line sorry everybody candy jail has been canceled uh there there will be no more episodes until robert finds another co-host there will be blood until brendan knows these lines like it's a tattoo on his soul so the two lines that i'm like holy fucking shit were a black hawk nailed to the sky and tape hiss from the trees i mean that is fucking insane because that's exactly how I'd imagine the final images, sounds, associations one might hear right after falling into a full, becoming fully blacked out from a major accident. And like, those are those flourishes where you're like, there's only so many folks that can do this shit. And he's one of them. There are others, but he's definitely one of them. Many, many writers, including many poets who have successful published careers will never write anything as good as tape hiss from the trees in their entire lives. Or even just the black hawk nail to the sky as like this hawk that is obviously in motion, but you've just been hit by a car. So it's just pasted onto that sky on the, in the wallpaper of that character's mind, you know, as it's fading to black. And I'm like, fuck that is uh I don't know what he had to do to get that line. I mean, and there's some truth with this too, right? Like not to um, romanticize suffering or to say you have to be depressed in order to make good art, although I can see arguments for it on some level. But I think there, I, we, knowing his story, so without turning it into a you have to have a dark night of the soul in order to produce good music, um, he did go through hell, like multiple, multiple hells. And so but look what came out, you know? And so on the one hand, it's like, I'm, I, it makes me sick and sad to imagine what he went through. Um, but he was able to turn what he went through into gold. And that but is an incredible feat. It was, and he was able to do that until he wasn't, right? I mean, we, we don't want to shy away from the fact that, that David Berman did take his own life in 2019 and that's certainly not something that I will ever judge him for, but it is, I think, something not to lose sight of, that sometimes even when you have the talent that allows you to perhaps take something that you stumbled upon in your dark night of the soul and turn it into something beautiful that may be life-affirming for other people, that sometimes also that's not enough for you. And in his case, ultimately it wasn't. And I, I think that adds another layer of complication and and sadness to the story and it it doesn't i don't mean that it has to be the whole story by any means but i think it's something that's important to not lose sight of i agree um anyway there's like so many side roads i could go down with that comment and we shall or we could at some point in a respectful and i hope productive way but in terms of um the answer to your question like how did i expose to him so I had a very, I uh, still have a very dear friend from college who was a serious music lover. And we had connected actually over music initially because I was into some very obscure white guy rap that he was from my high school days. Because um, in uh, New Mexico, we actually have a pretty healthy rap scene and certainly an independent or indie rap scene. So we 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 like our rap adjacent uh non-star stars, you know, so like Atmosphere, Brother Ali, a lot of rhyme sayers, but even like, um, what is it, cunning linguists, you know, folks from um, Southern rap scenes, really all over. But 
I was steeped in that from where I grew up. And so one of the bands or the labels that became the sort of indie darling band, at least for a time, was Anticon, which um, in its full uh, spell, spelling outedness is anti-conformity. And it's famously uh, represented with the symbol of an ant. So their big uh, names were Dose One, who's done a number of projects. His voice is genuinely bizarre, very nasally, almost sounds like he's got a deviated septum. And uh, Yoni Wolf, who winds up uh, collaborating with him on a rap experimental group called Cloud Dead. And then um, he formed his own band, Why, with a question mark, which is arguably the most famous uh, thing to come out of the Anacon label. But he essentially met Dose One while he was in college. They collaborated, formed Anacon the label. Um, I might be getting a couple details wrong, but they're essentially founders, As, along with um, what's the dude's name that formed Soul. I played you a couple Soul songs before. Um, his big one was uh, Selling Live Water, which is still actually a pretty interesting album. But anyway, when I realized that my friend, or when he realized that I was listening to that music, we immediately connected. And we wound up forming a friendship. And it was a fairly lonely period in my life, as I think it is for many college, like, you know, first semester college students where, I mean, there's certainly some people that are 18, 19, 20 that actually are liter like are mature adults. Uh, but most of us, certainly the, the young men have heads. My head was far up my ass and I was in a bad space. So to make, a friend in those moments is crucial, you know, for so many things, including success in college, but yeah, just general well-being um, to find even one or two people that you can connect with like that. So we connected through music. We wound, he wound up introducing me to what would become my best friends in college for my whole college career. And we wound up moving in together. So I wound up getting just exposed to an enormous amount of music. And his close friend was uh, from San Francisco and had grown up in San Francisco. And this guy was even more nuts with music and knew folks like, I mean, was going to bands that are now big names, I guess, um, at least amongst the Pitchfork folks. I don't mean that dismissively, but he's not, the name I'm about to drop is not as big as um, Pearl Jam, but the microphones, um, what's his name, Steve, uh, Elvram, Phil Elvram of the microphones was this other friend's favorite musician. So I started getting exposed to like all of these bands that constellate around people like Phil Elvram um, and really understanding like, yeah, these aren't top 40 hit makers, but amongst certain you know groups and certainly the um, artsy folks, they were like gods. So I got introduced to a lot of bands adjacent to folks like Elvram. And all of a sudden, I'm confronted by my friend Joey. That sounds aggressive. I am introduced by my friend Joey to Silver Jews. I remember exactly where we were. So we wound up in L.A. because we were in college in Southern California. Uh, not in L.A., but about an hour away. And there's a wonderful music store there that anyone who's from L.A. surely knows and certainly music nuts know, which is Amoeba Music. Uh, they have movies, too, but they're, I think, primarily known for their uh, enormous music selection, vinyl, CD, tapes, everything out of print, you know, recently released vinyl, everything. So we're on our way back from an Amoeba trip and he throws on 
Starlight Walker. He's like, check this out, man. First song comes on was just sort of the Hello, My Friends intro. Famous, wonderful intro. Uh, I'm like, I don't know, this isn't even a song. And then comes the opening jingles to uh, Trains Across the Sea. And I was completely hooked from the beginning to the end of that song. And I do think the lyrics were hitting me in ways that I'd never been hit before by lyrics. But it was actually, I think, his final, like, mm hmm hmm the way he hums that at the end, which is so, if you really focus on that, that's like his version of the lead singer of uh, Counting Crows doing his weird, like, yeah, you know, those weird fucking things he does. And you're like, you either love it or you can tolerate it or you can't, but that's what'll like lose a million fans right there. Um, Cause some people are going to find that annoying. I was immediately endeared to those idiosyncrasies of Berman's. I was like, I am just, it's not musical even really, but it's so personal. It's like what you would do in your closet in front of the mirror when no one's around and he's doing it recording, you know, and it's clearly so coming from such a personal place. So that song, and then when New Orleans came on, he might have jumped straight to New Orleans, knowing on some level that that was a good one to get someone hooked. And when he did the Alpha, Delta, Gamma, I actually predicted Gamma, so I must have been not too stoned in my science class in high school, because I remember Joey turned to me, he's like, how'd you know that? I was like, I took biology class, and I guess I remembered that one fucking thing. But... Those two songs, I was immediately like, this is my person, this is my band, and I just went full, like, mainlined Silver Jews. And I probably had, um, I wound up having American Water playing on repeat the rest of the summer. That must have been a spring semester, so when I went home for the summer, I just had American Water playing literally on loop the whole summer. So that was my introduction to Silver Jews um, was my friend Joey in a car, Starlight Walker, specifically trains across the sea in New Orleans is what made me a what I would uh, what I've now discovered to be a permanent super fan. So it's interesting that it's those two songs, because those are the two songs on that album that are that grab me the most as well, I think. New Orleans especially, I think, contains this. It, it's classic Berman in that the the music is incredibly, you know, it's very minor chord driven. The lyrics contain references to um, the gray half-light of the hallway at night and these very somber, lonely images and then in the middle of it, just as the the music is sort of reaching a crescendo and we're preparing to go towards what we think might be the climactic verse, he sings, there is a house in New Orleans, not the one you've heard of. I'm talking about another house. And it's this completely corny joke that somehow lands perfectly within the context of the song. And then it immediately gets very serious again after that. That is sort of classic Berman in terms of providing the comic relief in the middle of the most serious moment and thereby both the comedy and the seriousness being heightened by that juxtaposition and the imagery right i mean if i was going to say if there's any word or any image that recurs throughout his albums and his poetry 
if I had to, if you put a gun to my head and like, which one is the most frequent? Like I mentioned petulant is a Stephen King favorite, right? And actually it does show up in Hearts in Atlantis. I highlighted a few. We're reading listeners. Uh, we're getting ready to discuss a Steve, another Stephen King book. So, but anyway, um, hallways, it's all over the place, all over the place. And so are hangers, like coat hangers. He mentions a cold white maple hanger or husbands on the run in Trains Across the Sea. You encounter a maple hanger of a, actually just a hanger of a different color in one of his poems in actual air. So, you know, for the real nutcases like myself, although you seem to be there with me, like you can do some heavy David Berman Kabbalah, which I think would not be academic uh, analysis and just go, wow, look at how many images and associations connect across his entire body of work, not just the musical albums, but the poetry. Some of them are so clearly close to him um, for reasons that I would be maybe interested in exploring, but, uh, you know, just that those are his images. Hallways are one of them. I mean, the hallway is a central recurring thing for him. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking right now at a poem called If There Was a Book About This Hallway, which is a fantastic poem, of course. But yeah, it's one of those things that he comes back to again and again. And there are definitely thematic echoes or even deliberate references between some of the song lyrics and some of the poems. Didn't Is that that poem where he says something along the lines of like, if Jesus had died instead of on a cross in a hallway, would people wear little hallways around their necks? Yes. I, the, I, I love that. The exact line is, if Christ had died in a hallway, we might pray in hallways or wear little golden hallways around our necks. So fucking good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a... I never heard him talk about, and in generally, I, generally speaking, I hate this kind of thing where like somebody, an artist is being interviewed and they're like, who are your influences? And you know, then they, the artist in question lists off these people who were influential to them. And like, I, the only thing I've ever taken away from that is like, if I like someone and they like someone else, maybe I should go check out that thing that they like. Right. But trying to trace like, you know, this person got this from pavement, but they got this from this other, you know, I don't, I don't care. And it's half the time people don't even know. So I have, I don't know if Berman ever talked about what his quote unquote influences were, and I don't really care. Um, there's a bit of Billy Collins in there. I, I don't know that you can imagine Berman writing the way he did in a world that didn't have Billy Collins in it. But I suppose that's probably true of a lot of people who were writing poetry, you know, late 20th century, early 21st century. But it's it's that kind of humor, except Billy Collins is usually working up to a sort of a punchline at the end of the poem, which is also sort of the emotional release or payoff. Yeah, the emotional release at the end of the poem is often kind of a punchline in a Billy Collins poem. And Berman will put punchlines much earlier in the poem. And he wields humor in a fundamentally different way. And I've just never, I mean, just just reading, let me just read titles of, of poems from Actual Air. Classic Water, Governors on Samanex, The Coahoma County Wind Cults, Tableau Through Shattered Monocle, Community College in the Rain, the Night Nurse Essays, 
Canto, well, from Cantos for James Missioner, Part 2. I think if I just picked up the book at some point randomly and started looking at the titles, I'd be like, okay, I have to read this. Because even the way that he's wielding words in his titles betrays this this mastery and this complete originality. Um, yeah, like one biographical statement and then one personal anecdote as recounted by Bob Nastanovich and then recounted by me. So I hope this isn't a game of telephone where I'm misrepresenting how Nastanovich remembered it because he and Malcolmus, as you brought up, all wound up, I think, at University of Virginia at the same time. And it's important to note because Nastanovich brought this up. He was like, and he says this, he's like, listen, I was a normal, I'm, you know, I'm an artist, but I'm kind of a normal guy. And um, I realized very quickly that David Berman and Malcolmus were not normal guys. And maybe on some level, especially Berman, because he would encounter these major uh, talents in the English department that were well-respected poets in their own right and had published many books, one of which being James Tate. And then Tate uh, Berman would, I think, gladly say was a major mentor of his. But apparently, according to Nostanovich, they literally treated Berman, who was 20, as a colleague, as an equal. And I remember him saying, like, it was just fucking so surreal to be around my young friend who I was like, you know, drinking beers with, fucking around with as a kid, and then watching him be spoken to almost deferentially by tenured, uh, highly esteemed professors who were treating him that way because he was turning in work at 20 that they were like, this is this person is an equal. Um, an anecdote, just to give you another sense of like how seriously Berman was taking it, Nostanovich apparently went to his house or his, you know, where he was renting near the University of Virginia. I think it was while they were still in school. And they were going to pull a prank on him, like go around to his window because he was typing in front of his window and like knock on the window to be like, hey, like asshole, like let's go get some beer, like stop fucking doing your homework. And just before they were about to, you know, tap their knuckles on the window, they noticed or Nastanovich noticed he was in a state of deep, intense focus and he was biting his lower lip so hard it was literally bleeding and blood was running down his chin. And he turned to his friend and I'm not sure if they both had the same thought at once or if Nastanovich thought it and then said, hey, man, but he was like, leave him alone. He's he's in the thick of something. Don't fucking interrupt him. But I remember him saying something like, obviously, that was intense. And there might be an argument like that that was an indicator of like, maybe you do need to chill a little bit, but also he was taking it very seriously, very early. And I think Nastanovich was recognizing like, whoa, this is kind of what it takes to not only get to the point where he's at, but to maintain it and maybe even extend beyond it. And just being impressed by that kind of discipline um, to, to be a poet at the level that he wanted to be. One other detail, biographical detail that we didn't mention with him was that his father was a is a well-known right-wing political lobbyist, uh, a man who has and will defend the most evil causes with with articulate passion if they pay him enough money. And he's sort of a 
a living, breathing avatar of literally pretty much every single thing that is wrong with American politics. Um, and Berman at one point released a statement calling his father a what was it? A world class piece of shit. World historical. I think world world historical piece of shit. That is correct. And they, as far as I know, they never spoke again. Uh, his father did issue a statement when Berman died, but he was, I think, a man who was haunted. I mean, I think he he carried he he was guilty at being his father's son, and I think he took on himself some of the guilt that his father should have felt but apparently does not feel almost like he felt it was his cosmic duty. Like the Berman who is responsible for this shit will not feel guilty about it. So therefore another Berman has to feel guilty about it is almost the sense that I get. If there's a famous silver Jews song, if it, it obviously it would be random rules from uh, American water, which is a absolutely fantastic song, but the closing lines of that song, which is for the most part, a, a funny song, right? That's, in 1984, I was hospitalized for approaching perfection is the famous opening line of that song. But at the end, he says, now you know my middle names are wrong and right. Mm. And I think he he really struggled deeply with ethical questions, with how to be a good person, with taking on the the weight that he'd inherited from his father. And I think for people who are maybe wired in a similar way. They there's there's there people will recognize that in Berman, even though he 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 doesn't always come out and say things as clear as now you know my middle names are wrong and right, but it's there in the music and it's there in the in the poems. And once you see it, you will start to see it in, in more and more places. Yeah, I mean, there's another song where I think it's actually Malcolmus singing, although it might be, I can't remember now, um, but it says something like, and my father came in from wherever he'd been and kicked my shit all over the room. And then it's uh, repeated by Malcolmus. And, you know, I think it reveals like he was, he and Malcolmus maybe both could identify, I don't know Malcolmus's biography too well, but as being latchkey kids to some degree. He was clearly a mama's boy. I'm putting that in the best sense. Um, there's a reason why he wrote, I loved being my mother's son. And his father basically never gets an explicit reference, really almost uh, aside from that line, as far as I know. And I don't even know if that's biographical, but it just as well could be. It, I, I believe it could be based on what I've read. But yeah, he grew up in Worcester, Ohio and spent a big chunk of his life with his mom who divorced uh, his father. And then I don't remember the reasons why, but he wound up moving in with his dad in, I think it was Dallas, um, as a teenager. And it was a very difficult transition for him. And I imagine a lot of the antagonisms um, as they um, carried over into his, into his adult life really um, maybe solidified in those years he lived with just he and his father uh, in Texas. Did you ever get into Pavement at all? I've tried, man. There's a couple songs I really like. I think mostly from Wowie Zowie, which is one of their more famous ones. Um, I think they deserve attention, and I they deserve my attention more. And I think part of it, dude, is I've just been too fucking spoiled on Berman's lyrics. And even though I think, you know, to your point, right, um, not to 
not to throw the the instrumentals or whatever you want to call it, the arrangements, the musical arrangements of Silver Jews records under the bus. I would I think it's probably fair to say without being a pavement expert, they're more technically uh, impressive. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't there's not enough there for, or there hasn't been enough there. I haven't found enough to really make me want to stick with them. But I'm, I definitely feel a continued nagging need to give them their due. How, how about you? No, I never did. And, and I'm prime, like I'm the right generation to have gotten into pavement when they were putting out records. And I didn't, I don't know why I, I, I mean, I was aware of them. Um, and every time I've come back since I've been older, it's it's Malcolmus's voice. I think um, I love him as a backup singer. Um, I love when he's a backup singer for Berman's songs. I love him as a, a lead guitar player. He's incredible. But I, I've just I've never been able to to engage with with the pavement music. Well, there goes any chance we had of getting Bob Nastanovich on the podcast. I guess. I don't. Uh, I actually just. I think he would. You mean because we are not pavement uh, literate? Yeah, because I was just shit talking Stephen Malcolm's voice. Well, I think that's that's okay. I mean, it was. He was sort of. I. I don't want to speculate too much, but in a way, he almost lays out that he was sort of stuck in the middle between Berman and Malcolm's, um, and basically confesses himself in saying he he's not as talented as these guys. And that they are towering talents, and he feels he felt um, very blessed to have just sort of randomly wound up in the right place at the right time, not just for a musical career, but just to be around these tremendous people, you know, these tremendous artists, and 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 be their friends and work with them. But well, oh, um, you know, as you just framed it, I think it's, it was almost a perfect framing of Malcolm's and Berman's stormy relationship, stormy friendship. I mean, Berman was adamant. I think he wound up recording Natural Bridge in secret, as in like he didn't tell Malcolmus he'd recorded it because he was adamant on not becoming what he was terming a pavement side project. He really wanted to make it clear, like, I am my own person. I don't need Malcolmus. If he wants to come and help, that's great, or work with, collaborate, but I'm not his uh, sidekick. And maybe uh, Malcolmus, even if it's not as spelled out, felt similarly, right? And there was a, con- it seemed like there was a constant sort of push and pull. I remember in a, f- a phone interview that that one uh, YouTuber had posted that was trying to write a biography or a uh, at least a band biography of Silver Jews. She was going to throw in her hat for a competition to get funding to do this. Um, Berman had, as was characteristic of him with his fans, agreed to talk to a total stranger about his life for hours. And she recorded the phone calls. The book never got written, but after he died, she was generous and posted the uh, discussions on YouTube. And she asked him about Malcolmus, you know, and so he talks about it in lots of different ways. But he's, it was interesting. And the point, I think, he says he and Malcolmus's friendship really became strained was when he heard a line on a pavement album that said, I've got style for miles or like, I've got style for miles and miles. And you could just tell like Berman was reacting to something he felt was too slick and self-satisfied and hip. 
And I think Malcolmus might have also not automatically been that way, but he's not that good of a writer. The same way that Berman's not that good of a guitarist. And instead of that allowing to coexist, I think there was a very, not even beneath the surface, like a fairly exposed competitiveness that, that might have been there from the beginning. Yeah, I remember listening to a podcast not too long ago, and I, I don't remember what it was, but I mean no disrespect to anyone who was on it. I think Nastanovich might have been interviewed on the podcast, but they were, it was people who were fans of Berman, but also fans of Pavement. And I remember one of them cited a Malcolmus line and said, God, that's such a great, a great line. And I thought, well, it's not really. Like, it sounds okay. I don't think it means anything, but it doesn't also, I don't know. I mean, I I understand that all of this is so subjective on some level, but there are phrases that do not make any literal sense that have the ring of truth to them. And there are phrases that make no literal sense and also don't have the ring of truth to them. And the Malcolmus example that he cited, whatever it was, fell into that latter category. Is that enough for me to judge Malcolmus's entire body of work? Of course not. But it is interesting to me that both of us, after getting into Silver Jews, were sort of stymied in our efforts to get into pavement. I don't say this to throw Berman under the bus, because at this point, I think it has to be clear to you, but I hope to listeners that this is about as as important and dear an artist to, to me as any artist that's ever existed, any human that's ever existed. Uh, he's human, the same way that Malcolmus is human. And um, egos were involved, I think, on some level. And in spite of that, they were able to collaborate uh, on a number of occasions and produce phenomenal work, but it sounds like it was a little stormy, but how could it not be, right? With people this talented, no matter how evolved they are on some level, I, I think um, this is just humans being humans, right? Yeah, no. Collaborators always have the same issues over and over again. I don't know how many times I've asked you to not play guitar on this podcast. And- <laughs> Don't worry, I won't. Uh, I won't play because in this instance, I I'm fairly uh, clear about my limitations with that uh, with that activity. I recorded an episode of Candy Jail in secret. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know when I make it public. I think what we should do is, and we've talked about this a little bit off mic, but I would like to go through David Berman's discography album by album and devote maybe uh, an episode to each album, but not do it all at once. You know, like, let's let's start at the beginning, we'll release whichever one we decide to start with, whether we go chronologically or not, we'll release the first one, and then we'll do some, some other regular Candy Jail episodes for a few weeks, and then we'll come back and we'll We'll do Berman again, we'll do another album, and that'll be sort of an ongoing project here, but we need to we do need to honor the namesake of our podcast and we have been skirting around him for a while now. And I just want to, for our sakes, but also for our listeners, if this actually sounds exciting to them, when did we release our first episode? And I promise it's, it's tied into this. I don't know. You think I keep track of this fucking shit, man? Um, let me, hang on. Let me check. May 17th. Okay. How about we make a loose agreement? loose 
no uh, binding contracts that we get through. We do an episode on each, on every Silver Jews album by May 17th of 2024. Okay. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. On the first year of our podcast, we have uh, taken a first pass at Berman Silver Jews Corpus. Yeah. So anybody who's out there listening, I I think we kind of assume that if you're here, if you found us, you probably have some sense of who David Berman is. But if you don't and you're intrigued, is it even possible to recommend like a good consensus starting point, Robert? I actually think it makes sense. There's a I've thought about this a lot. I think it makes sense to start with random rules just because it's catchy it's it's got the ingenious lyricism plus Malcolm's incredibly lush and rich guitar and um I think it'll provide a good entry point toehold for new uh people that are trying to just get a toehold with Berman's work I've got my own personal quirky ideas about where people could start instead but my gut would say start there as like a go-to um, response. What about you, men? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Or anything from the Purple Mountains record, but maybe specifically either the song Darkness and Cold or the song Margaritas at the Mall. Um, yeah, good choices. And uh, and that band really was, was Berman with uh, the Brooklyn band Woods. So I, we ought to give Woods a shout out while we're here. Um, and they're also a great band in their own right. I really like their music. Uh, and uh, in a, I don't think I've encountered an album I didn't like. It's very different from Silver Jews, but it's really good stuff. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, my understanding was that for a while when that album was in the works, he was working with Dan Behar, uh, aka Destroyer, but that that didn't work out at all that their their working styles were just totally different and what he really needed was to connect with those guys in woods there are some there are two podcasters i haven't dipped uh deeply into their podcast but it's called joker man clearly a reference to bob dylan these are big bob dylan fans i was listening to their purple mountains episode uh just to refresh my memory of how they talked about it before we got on and they bring this up the behar uh recordings and apparently the words that were used to describe what it sounded like were harsh and brittle. And I think brittle was the other one. And and both of them are like, if I could think of two words least associated in my mind with Berman's entire sort of approach, it would be those words. So it's clearly, it wasn't meant to be, but it sounds like they both recognized that and parted amicably. Harsh and brittle are the two adjectives used most frequently to describe this podcast so <laughs> maybe we should change it to uh, uh, like riddle harsh candy jail asshole not the one you heard about I'm talking about another house they spoke of gold in the cellar that a Spanish gentleman had left I broke in one years ago with a dagger tucked in my vest legends of gold I tried to hold the gray half light of the hallway at night one two 
inside the song. Well, we're trapped inside the song. Trapped inside the song. Trapped inside.